Welcome to the Thinking Differently podcast, where we explore the new horizons of our rapidly changing world. I'm Rod Collins, your host for today's podcast. As technological innovations continue to transform the rules for how successful businesses work, we challenge business leaders to rethink how they remain competitive in a digitally transformed marketplace. Our theme for this first season is digital transformation. In our last episode, we described the incredible power of networks as a form of social organization. In this episode, we're going to focus on the source of that power, the natural inclination for networks to harness collective intelligence. The science fiction writer William Gibson once keenly observed, the future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. If we look closely at what's happening around us, we will recognize that this is certainly true about a powerful phenomenon that seems to remain hidden in plain sight, and that's collective intelligence. But that's about to change as digital transformation continues to fuel a business and management revolution. Within the next decade, we are likely to see a succession of once dominant top-down hierarchical stalwarts rapidly giving way to far more powerful peer-to-peer networks, thanks to the continued proliferation of digital technology. And when they are displaced, their leaders will be stunned because despite clear evidence that our world is becoming increasingly hyper-connected, they were unable to see our ongoing transformation to a fully networked world. Although they use connected iPhones to do Google searches, as they step into an Uber car, on their way to close a deal they made on eBay, they are oblivious to just how radically the world is changing around us. Their tools may be networked, but the world they carry around inside their heads is still very hierarchical and linear. It's an unsustainable situation, and we know how this ends. The future always wins, and it's just a matter of time before the future will become very evenly distributed. The prime distinction between hierarchies and networks is that hierarchies are designed to leverage the power of the elite, while networks naturally enable the power of the many. That is why networks are so much more powerful. Perhaps you may be thinking, if networks are so superior, why is it that hierarchies have shaped our social architecture for all this time and continue to do so even today? The simple answer is, until the digital technology revolution we had no way to effectively bring people together into cohesive 
real-time networks. In the absence of this capability, the best we could do to coordinate the activities of large numbers of people was to build sophisticated hierarchical structures. The fundamental assumption underlying what was once the greatest human organizational innovation is that by leveraging the individual intelligence of the elite leaders at the top, the whole organization is smarter than it otherwise would be if people were left to their own judgments. And for many centuries, this supposition was true. However, the current technology revolution has spawned a new and very different innovation in organizational structure that has completely nullified this centuries-old assumption. In the hyper-connected world, the smartest organizations are not the ones with the smartest individuals, but rather those with the capacity to rapidly aggregate and leverage their collective intelligence. Unfortunately, most companies are unable to access this intelligence because their leaders are unfamiliar with the very different dynamics for managing networks. They prefer to stick with the familiar practices of hierarchical command and control management. Unfortunately for them, their ability to hold on to their preferred ways of managing just got a whole lot more difficult. As a consequence of the sudden appearance of the coronavirus, central workplaces have morphed overnight into networks of distributed remote workers. Traditional leaders have responded by using digital meeting technologies such as Zoom to continue to centrally command and control the work of their subordinates. But they are learning. It's not easy to amplify your individual intelligence across people you never see in person. If remote working becomes a more permanent modus operandi, it's just a matter of time before managers will need to become skilled in the tools and practices for collating collective intelligence if they hope to accomplish steady results. And when they do, they will discover that they are leading far more powerful and more importantly, far more resilient organizations. What makes networks so resilient is that unlike centralized structures, distributed structures don't have the single points of failure, which are the Achilles heel of command and control organizations. If you can disable a leader in a hierarchy, you can often disable the whole organization. That is not so with networks. Instead of leveraging the individual smarts of an elite few, networks leverage the collective intelligence of everyone in the distributed system. Thus, eliminating single points of failure in complex organizations. This eradication 
is the great game changer and arguably the single most important attribute of digital transformation. In his seminal book, The Wisdom of Crowds, James Surawiecki provides numerous examples of where, under the right circumstances, distributed groups are highly intelligent and consistently outperform even the smartest individuals among them. He describes how the sports bookmakers at the Mirage assure the reliable profitability of the betting operations at the Las Vegas Hotel by relying on the collective judgments of the gamblers to set betting lines. He also describes how Linus Torvalds defied logic by introducing the phenomenon that has come to be known as crowdsourcing to build the highly successful Linux operating system. And he also describes how Google, a late entry into a crowded field of upstarts, established quick dominance of the search engine market when a pair of Stanford graduate students discovered a way to use the collective intelligence of the users to rank the pages. Despite these compelling examples, tapping into the wisdom of the crowd is more the exception than the rule. Perhaps that's because accessing collective intelligence is not as easy as it may appear. There are many leaders who feel that they are tapping into this resource by gathering different perspectives into a room and managing a spirited discussion among the multiple points of view before making an executive decision. While they may be well-intentioned, this is not how collective intelligence works. Sorowiki specifies four conditions that are necessary to access the wisdom of the crowd. The first is diversity of opinion. Having different perspectives, even eccentric notions, broadens the available information, provides the capacity for evolving ideas, makes it easier for individuals to be candid, and protects against the negative dynamics of short-sighted groupthink. The next is independent thinking. Each individual is free to express his or her own opinions without editing and without any pressure to conform to the beliefs of others in the group. Sorowiki makes the point that, paradoxically, the best way for a group to be smart is for each person in it to think and act as independently as possible. The third condition is local knowledge. To truly access collective intelligence, the group must be able to draw upon specialized and localized knowledge because the closer a person is to the problem or the customer, the more likely he or she is to have a meaningful contribution. And finally, aggregation mechanisms. A distributed system can only produce genuinely intelligent results if there are processes or algorithms for integrating the content of everyone's observations and opinions.
without all four conditions, accessing collective intelligence is not possible. That is why the leader who gathers different perspectives into a lively discussion is not tapping into the collective wisdom of the group. Although he or she may have access to multiple perspectives and have input from people with extensive local knowledge, chances are organizational politics is interfering with true independent thinking. And when the leader is processing the consolidation of the information, there is clearly no aggregation mechanism. The Google search engine, on the other hand, has all four attributes. The billions of users assure diversity of opinion, as well as sufficient local knowledge. People are free to exercise individual choice of the pages to view. And sophisticated algorithms serve as highly effective aggregation mechanisms. Learning how to aggregate and leverage an organization's collective intelligence is the key competency that enables leaders to build a better future for their customers and their organizations, especially when the world is rapidly changing. If leaders are to create a better future, they will need to change the world they carry inside their heads, a world that has been ingrained since the first day they stepped into a schoolroom. There they learned that human intelligence was an attribute of individuals and that knowledge is advanced through a competition of ideas. There is nothing in their educational histories that has prepared them for a world of networked intelligence that has suddenly actualized what used to be just a platitude. Nobody is smarter than everybody. It is often said that necessity is the mother of invention. This was a lesson that I would learn firsthand when the capacity to aggregate and leverage collective intelligence would come to the rescue and literally solve an apparently unsolvable business problem a few years back when I served as the Chief Operating Executive for the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. FEP, as we called it, was a business alliance of the then 39 separate Blue Cross Blue Shield carriers to provide health insurance to over 4.6 million federal employees and their family members across the United States. In 2002, we were building a new claims processing system that was scheduled to go live on January 1, 2003. Things appeared to be going well until one Wednesday morning in May when I arrived at the office and was greeted by two managers who informed me that we had a serious problem with the new system. Over the previous evening, we had run the first major test of the new claim system. The test was a disaster. Nothing was working as expected, and there was an infinite list of problems to be fixed. However, what made this crisis particularly problematic was that while we knew the overall system wasn't working, 
we had no usable data on the performance of the 39 individual companies. Consequently, we had no idea where to focus our work to correct the problems. We had no analytics to guide the building of an action plan. And without a plan, organizing our efforts would be a misguided shot in the dark. Working harder was not an option. We had to work smarter. As I thought about how we could solve this wicked problem, I realized we had an unusual tool that just might help us build a successful work plan. For the previous five years, we had been using a facilitated meeting format to collate the collective intelligence of our people in crafting product strategies and improving our regular business processes. Although we did not have the ability to use quantifiable data to devise a corrective action plan for our systems problem, I recognized that we were not totally without access to important information that could creatively guide us to a solution. So the following day, I assembled a three-hour meeting of 40 members from our staff. In addition to people from our systems and operations areas, we had representatives from every functional group and every level in our organization. The full diversity of our business was in the room. I opened the meeting by explaining that our task was to place the names of every one of the 39 companies in our alliance on one of four flip charts at the front of the room. Each chart had a different color written across the top of the page. Blue meant that the group expected the company would perform well without needing any help from our central office. Green was for companies that were likely to perform well, but might need for us to check with them periodically to make sure they didn't go off course. Yellow designated those companies that would need to be managed very closely because they were likely to be the ones driving the problems we experienced in the test. And finally, red was for those companies that would likely fail and where no amount of tactical intervention would make a difference because the local CIOs had elected to assign minimal resources to the systems conversion project. They assumed the conversion would fail and didn't want to waste resources. I then reviewed the two rules for the color coding of each of the companies. The first rule was that no company would be listed on the flip charts until there was unanimous agreement among all 40 people. The second rule was that no one should go along with the group just for the sake of moving us along. If people truly felt the color designation was wrong, I emphasized they had an obligation to continue to present their concerns until they were satisfied because they might be seeing something that no one else recognized. This second rule was most important 
because it ensured independent thinking and it helped also assure that we were tapping into collective intelligence rather than groupthink. It took us the full three hours to categorize all the companies. When we were done, we had our corrective action plan and a shared understanding about where to focus our work. We left the blue companies alone, periodically checked in with the green companies and worked very closely with the yellow companies. As for the red companies, there were two of them, a phone call was made to each of their CEOs to put in place the resource commitments necessary to move those organizations onto the yellow list. In our practice of using collective intelligence as a valuable tool at FEP, the most important lesson we learned was that when solving complex problems, nobody really is smarter than everybody. Because we had the processes to tap into the collective intelligence of our own people, we were able to craft a reliable corrective action plan for our systems crisis. While we felt confident that our plan would work, we were nevertheless astounded by the actual results of our efforts. Unlike the prior systems installation in 1985 that had a year's worth of bugs to resolve, when our new claims processing system went live on time and under budget on January 1, 2003, we did not have a single customer-facing issue. Thanks to the game-changing power of collective intelligence, we had achieved a flawless systems conversion. I tell this story because it is so counterintuitive and hard to believe, and yet collective intelligence works and works very well. Surawaki points out that one of the striking things about the wisdom of crowds is that even though its effects are all around us, it's easy to miss, and even when it's seen, it can be hard to accept. Simply put, the phenomenon of collective intelligence has been hidden in plain sight because it defies all our beliefs about how intelligence works. But whether we believe it or not won't matter for much longer because we are on the threshold of one of the most consequential events that will reshape the human experience and accelerate the evolution of both human and artificial collective intelligence. And that is the connection of all humans and things via the internet of things. More on this in our next episode. Thanks for listening today. Please join us next week for another episode where we will share more engaging stories about the new rules for successfully leading businesses in a rapidly changing world. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.